welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Sean. And I'm Eric. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to look into horror and murder and disturbing this comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I guess also some irreverence and magical god and angel and devil stuff comics, too. Really putting our finger on the pulse here. Yeah. <laughs> Today we were talking about Hellblazer, and we are probably going to do so with a certain amount of irreverence. Yes, indeed. This will be the final episode of the Jamie Delano run as we wrap up his last two issues. I'm really looking forward to getting into Garth Ennis's Hellblazer run. How about you? Yeah, that's a way of putting it. <laughs> Bye-bye, genius James. <laughs> I feel like we're being really mean right now. <laughs> well, we have quite an adventure for you today, folks. Jamie Delano's the last two issues of his run are controversial. I think even in this room. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, I don't know about anywhere outside this room how they've been received, but but they're controversial. I can only assume that they're controversial. Um, it would be weird if they weren't controversial, you it, know what I'm saying? It is worth mentioning, by way of context, that this is the first Hellblazer story I read. And it certainly made an impression on me in terms of what the book was going to be like, what the book was going to be about. Oh, I thought you read, like, starting from the beginning of this trade. Yeah, well, the entire John is Depressed meta arc. Oh, okay. So you read that Meat is Murder stuff, too, before you read Dangerous Habits. Yeah, but I started at the end of Delano's run, and then I read Dangerous Habits, and then I went back to number one. I see. But this is Hellblazer number 39, The Hanged Man, written by Jamie Delano, art by Steve Pugh, colors by Tom Zuiko, cover by Kent Williams, we have two different images here of men wrestling. I said they were mirror images. Well, they definitely look like mirror images because you get the Hellblazer, although oh, yeah, it's in the and, opposite and the, corner, so that's yeah. not a mirror. And the Hellblazer title and credits are both top and bottom of the issue. I wrote, Grown Men Fighting in the Womb. Yeah, that's a way of putting it. Gives away a little bit about what we're about to see. So, where we last left our hero, John Constantine, had become somewhat depressed thought that the world was going to hell and he wasn't really part of the solution, so he sought out his old friends Marge and Mercury. Mercury has telepathic powers, which he thought might help him. Marge has a penchant for sleeping with him, which he also thought might help him. <laughs> it's the last thing he needs, really. Yeah, they got quite annoyed with him. Mercury uh, showed him his death using her powers. It was in the future. He lived in a church, and then there were some floods, and then he was pursued by hellhounds into the water where he was eaten by the sharks of guilt. Literal sharks. Made of guilt. Yes. Anything else we need to cover before we get started? Nope, I don't think so. I think we're ready to go. So we find Marge resting in a graveyard, thinking about how autumn is the time to stay at home with family. That's not the kind of person who's supposed to rest in a graveyard. Oh, yeah. She's not at rest in a graveyard. She's just lying on the grass. No, yeah. I'm not saying that you said it wrong. I'm saying that she's doing it wrong. Because she's alive. Yeah. <laughs> she fucked up already. Huh? Yeah, you're already fucking up. She has gathered a family around her, including Zed, Martin, and Errol, but she's not so sure about this John Constantine. Now, Zed and Errol are characters that we've met before. They were all part of the pagan nation together, which was sort of the big pagan group that was traveling around and ended up being really central to the Fear Machine arc. Martin is a new addition to the group. A young man whose father was a butcher, who was a vegetarian, and he hated that. Not the father was the vegetarian. Martin was a vegetarian. His father was a butcher. 
Yeah. Hence they hated each other. Yeah. Hence well, Martin is here. <laughs> that and the father was also a fucking homicidal asshole. Yeah. She bounces an acorn off of John's head. Wait, hang on. You gotta talk about the stars. Okay, so Marge has a stick, and she has drawn, first of all, what looks like a six-pointed star in the ground here, and then over it a five-pointed star. Yeah. Okay, she talks about the stability of the pattern when it has six people in it versus when it has five. Right. Yeah. And I think the idea here is that the six-pointed star is a star of David, right? Yeah. She says the whole pattern changes when the star at its center has five points, not six. So the star of David, you know, good, a very traditional symbol of faith, Mm -hmm. right? The five-pointed star has a pentagram at its center. Well, but an, an upright pentagram is a symbol of goodness and protection. And I think Delano would know that. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I, I see your point, and it's a good point. So so she bounces an acorn off of John Constantine's head. Yeah, he really can't catch a break with all these people. <laughs> these bloody people. Stop lying there like that. It's spooky. She says John is lying on the grass in the hanged man position with his arms out at his sides and one leg curled over the other. The hanged man is, of course, a tarot card. We had some tarot themes earlier in this story, and the next issue is also named after a tarot card. Yeah, that's right. And in the background, sort of in front of John, what he's looking at, or he would be looking at if his eyes weren't closed and his head weren't hanging back, is an old church tower. Right. Christ, I feel like an old man. Yeah, he's obviously thinking of the scene of his death back in number 36. This ruined church, which in the dream was surrounded by water. Marge asks if he's going to stick around. He changes the subject. He says he doesn't like the place that Zed's picked for their camp. It's got such a bloody weird feel to it. Yeah, he's clearly ill at ease, which, you know, kind of connects to uh, the previous issues in this story. Right. He's been feeling ill at ease for a while. The place feels sickeningly familiar, he says. He had nightmares last night of floods, drownings, snakes, and also loos. I thought that was kind of funny. Right, yeah. The old bathroom nightmares. It means you need to get up and go pee. Yeah. And he also has nightmares of female sexuality, apparently. Well, that's what Marge interprets. She says floods represent the subconscious and snakes are female symbols. Poor John, I think you feel trapped in a swamp of femininity, wanting and resenting it at the same time. I think you're going to run away again. Well, okay, so she says floods represent the fear of the subconscious, but everything actually was flooded when he saw his death a couple of issues ago. Yeah, I think he's thinking about his death, and here we have a panel of him looking out to sea, which is another reflection of that scene. Yeah, he also had that really weird dream that took place on a beach that one time. Yeah, with the seagulls, and we can see the seagulls flying by here too. Anyway, so Marge says everything would be fine if he would just let them, you know, his adopted family, including her and Zed, just love him. And she's hugging him here and he has an amazing death first face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thing is, he, he doesn't feel up to it. He says that he's too lazy and weak. I've heard it all before and it's crap, John. You're strong. You have love and compassion. I've felt them from you. We all have. Marge, Marge. I know how to go through the motions, but I'm hollow, a fraud. I'm only half a man. Only half a man. At this point, they see a glowing naked kid. 
Yeah, just as it's appropriate, the golden boy appears for the first time. Yeah. The golden boy, John identifies it by that name, and then it disappears down into a pile of rocks. John chases it, but he can't keep up. He's crying. It was the golden boy again. Didn't you see him? He was so beautiful. Who's the golden boy? I was never sure. I used to see him sometimes when I was a kid, usually when I was feeling hard done by. Sort of imaginary friend, I suppose. Only he'd never be my friend, no matter how much I wanted him to be. An imaginary frenemy, if you will. Right. And the Golden Boy is sort of set up here as an idealized Constantine, an idealized self-image that John is chasing. First time I saw him, I was four or five, with me dad, visiting Mamsgrave. The old bastard never said I'd killed her, but I always knew that's what he felt. I was a sickly little salt, always dressed in shabby clothes, sneaky-looking, the neighborhood mothers said, always getting the blame for everything. When he stepped out from behind the cross, he was so shiny, fine, and beautiful, I thought he must be Jesus. Yeah, Constantine says that he wanted to be close to him, to soak up his strength, his cleanness, and that he knew if he could, that would make his father love him. He says he loved the golden boy, but he hated him as well. The contrast was too great. It made John seem even weaker and uglier. I wanted to smear his perfection. And the golden boy knew it. He sneered and waved dismissively, and then disappeared. It's worth noting here that Constantine started cussing up a storm when the golden boy disappeared, which caused his father to believe that he was disrespecting his mother's grave. Right. But yeah, then at school he would see glimpses of the golden boy in other kids. An athlete, a choir boy, a prefect. Now these are all the things that John isn't, right? An athlete is a great physical specimen. John has never been that, even though... You know, attractive women seem to find him attractive enough. Mm-hmm. But he's never been Superman. He's not that kind of DC hero. Uh, he's not a choir boy. He's never been virtuous. And he's not a prefect. He's never been particularly in the favor of the authorities. Yeah, that's a good analysis. Marge says the golden boy wasn't real. John says he could have been if John had let him. Yeah, and now John here, he seems to be playing with a bird carcass there on the beach. He picks up a dead seagull skull. That's another callback to Hellblazer number 13. On the beach? Yeah. Yeah, and he's looking up at the church tower again as well. He says there's some kind of presence here that has him in its sights. He asks what ruined the old church, and Marge says lightning, and that they could be safe there because it never strikes twice. Yeah, she says they say it never strikes twice, and he says they're wrong. He quotes here, Child rolling to the dark tower came. That's Stephen King by way of King Lear, right? Yeah. Stephen King, obviously, the Dark Tower series. Yeah, yeah. King Lear, obviously, a play by William Shakespeare. It's also the name of a Robert Browning poem. Oh, yeah. You know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's husband. Yep. Because, you know, it's a joke on the fact that People are always referring to women as, like, oh, oh yeah. the wife of so-and-so. <laughs> John says this place is the center of his spiral, like a dog that's wound its leash around a tree. He says this is his last chance to find some magic that will make sense of his whole life. Marge offers to help, but John says, this is magic shit. He needs Zed. Marge, as he goes, says, for him to take care, you hopeless bastard. John walks home in the rain. Errol calls out to him, but John ignores him. Moody sod. Errol is covered in blood. He has just presided over the births of twin sheep. Actually, Martin did the work. He's great with animals. So this is important, the birth of twins, and it was a difficult birth, but the mother pulled through. Right, and one of the lambs is black and the other one is white. Right. 
John steps into Zed's hut. She's bald and spooky looking. Right. Very much not looking the same as that first full page that we got of her in the first issue where she appeared. Issue four or five, I think it was. She says she was expecting him earlier. Now it's time to shit or get off the pot. Time to heal that sucking wound of fear once and for all. Yeah, he says he's showing off his open wounds. And she says it's time to heal them. Now he says that he's not afraid of death anymore after the treatment that Mercury gave him. She says, yeah, right. But she says it's not about the fear of death. This is about birth. Yeah, she pulls a fool card and tells him that he's a fool. And perhaps that's why she loves him. Okay, so she can sort of help him by divining here, and she lays out three tarot cards. The first is who you are, the hanged man. Second's in between, the, the tower. And the third is who you want to be, the magus. The magicness. <laughs> Magic Mike. <laughs> Channing Tatum. Well, we had said that he wasn't as attractive as he wanted to be. <laughs> we set his sights. <laughs> Channing Tatum cannot play Constantine <laughs> the next time they make a movie. Oh, man. He's just too good looking. For background here, the Hanged Man represents paralysis and inaction. The Tower card represents destruction, revelation, disruptive change. And the Magus, they kind of talked about back in number 36. It's Aleister Crowley's version of... The Magician card. The Magician is kind of the starting point. Immaturity, but potential. Oh. The interpretation of the Magus is maybe not as important as the other two, because I think they're using it to represent genuinely a powerful Magician in this context. Right. More than what it means. I see. So John studies the Hanged Man card. He feels this sensation of drowning or choking. But we realize it's actually the sensation of birth. Yeah, now we get a flashback to his birth. He is small and sickly. We see the doctor holding him upside down here, and, and the baby Constantine is once again in the hanged man position. Hardly seems possible, but it's breathing. Get it in an incubator. It's at least 40% underweight. We've lost the mother, I'm afraid. She's a bloody mess inside, and... Oh no, there's another one in there. No hope, though. Ruptured placenta. The hemorrhaging killed them both. Full grown, too. The other one's sickly in comparison. What a shame. Would have been a lovely kid. So much for natural selection. Now, when his father, Willem Dafoe, old Tom Constantine, sees him, There's been a mistake. Where's my baby? Where's my wife? That's not mine. Take it away. Yeah, he hates the surviving baby on sight. I don't want it. It's ugly. It's evil. Really, Mr. Constantine, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's an innocent little baby. You'll see. You'll grow to love him. Never! It's a killer! Put a pillow over its head! <laughs> wow, that's very... He, he got very murdery very fast. Yes, as they drag him away to get a sedative, a nurse says to the little baby, John, Welcome to the world, you poor little sod. Yeah, and he starts talking about his twin. He says there should have been two of me. He's talking to his shadow on the wall. Split kind of a cool detail. Split personality, a divided self. There should have been two of me, but you killed him. You killed your brother, just like Mercury told you. Which was also in Albazer number 36. You killed the golden boy, the Magus. Killed the best part of yourself. You're as guilty as original sin. Oh! Yeah. Actually, I was about to say, I don't know. Original sin was a pretty bad story arc. But... <laughs> This might be 
course. Remind me, what's Original Sin? Original Sin, Jason Aaron, somebody murdered the Watcher, <laughs> and they grab his eyeballs, and his eyeballs contain all the secrets that he's seen. Everybody and... sees a secret that makes them mad. Everybody sees a secret that makes them do something stupid. <laughs> in, That's a way of putting it. In yeah. Thor's case, he has to go to the Tenth Realm and meet his sister Angela who was created by Neil Gaiman full circle all right <laughs> we actually have to get back to Jamie Delano <laughs> oh well they both worked on comic books edited by Karen Berger all right and number 40 is incidentally the last issue of Hellblazer to be edited by Karen Berger at least for a while oh okay john walks out on the beach thinking how it wasn't death he was afraid of but this revelation yeah, he says that he's guilty as original sin and that he's condemned, hanged for it over and over. So once again, we're not getting the actual meaning of the tarot card because he doesn't see it as paralysis. I mean, maybe there's some paralysis mixed in there as well. But for him, it's really kind of like guilt, like this idea of being hanged as being condemned. Right, yeah. And, you know, you can see that the way that like he gets judgment from uh, Marge and Mercury, even when he's not really doing much of anything wrong. <laughs> There's some condo- condemnation there. Yeah. So this this revelation is the disruptive revelation, is the tower, and so he heads for the tower, the church. He was like, this is it. All right, final chance. The tower stands between the hanged man and the magus. Right, let's have him then, Errol. I'll get him down me neck while you light a fire. Errol has tagged along to help him, and and specifically to help him by giving him an awful lot of hallucinogenic mushrooms. It's a freaky night, and from what I remember, psychedelics really shake you out of your tree. Yeah, Errol was there when he got super high in the fear machine. Started running around hallucinating swamp thing. Right. I think he killed a Russian. It was a weird story. It was a long (laughs) time ago. (laughs) Yeah, you might want to lay low for a while because you're probably wanted for murder. So John takes the bag of hallucinogenic mushrooms and just pours them all in his mouth. (laughs) As Errol points out that there were 500 mushrooms in that bag. He tells him he doesn't have to stay, but Errol says, of course he's going to stay and watch his back. And John says, Errol, you're the bollocks. Oh, right, because Errol calls everything the bollocks. Yeah, including Errol himself. Yeah, Errol lights a fire. John runs away. I guess his motivation here was he didn't like psychedelics before because he was clinging too hard to control, but maybe getting rid of his control is what he needs to solve this problem? Yeah, that's the story that he tells Errol anyway. So he's running along the rocks on this beach. Rock jumping again, perpetual motion. The whole life spent stepping from moment to moment. We saw this rock jumping perpetual motion thing back in issue 34. Yeah, earlier in the story arc we talked about it. It's a metaphor. Uh, He keeps running his whole life. He's afraid he'll fall if he stops. John finds this giant statue of an exaggerated maternal figure. I just wrote big woman. Yeah. And he says it's the source of all magic. Or no, when he comes to the womb, it's the source of all magic. Right, the center of the spiral, which reminded me very much of the witch's cave in the King Constantine annual. Yeah, and... This tower reminds me of that as well. Maybe this is supposed to be the same tower. Maybe not. That tower's at Ravenscar, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Well, they're not at Ravenscar here. Ah, this is confusing. 
because we're kind of meant to draw the conclusion that the tower that we're seeing here is the same tower that we see in the alternate universe, right? Except that's definitely at Ravenscar, and John would know if he was at Ravenscar in his dimension. He's been there before. Right, yeah, they say Ravenscar a bunch of times. But look. Oh, yeah, the same exaggerated woman statue. From, what is it, Hellblazer Annual Number 1? Yeah. Okay, so he walks into the womb of this giant statue, and we see these, like, glaring dragon eyes from inside the cave. And again, reminds me an awful lot of that witch's hut in that story. Yeah, and he's got these little, like, hallucinating... They're kind of like drunk bubbles, but they're different colors and kind of wobbly, so they're more like hallucinating bubbles around his head. Oh, I thought this was pretty funny, too. He says, this isn't magic, it's illusion. You don't have to swallow this bullshit. You weren't born yesterday. But then he just decides to go along with it. Yeah, like two seconds later, he says it's the source of all magic. So, okay. (laughs) All right, man. This is madness. It's too narrow. I can't go any further. You can. You have to. You want to. You need to. He's waiting for you. Yeah, so he comes across a bit of cave that he can't get through in his trench coat, and he strips naked and dives into this water. And now there's a baby. Yeah, when he took off swimming, he was a man, but now we see ugly baby John swimming toward the beautiful golden boy baby in the womb. Yeah, and he wants to touch it. To be healed and made whole, he also wants to kill it, because it's so much better that he looks like shit by comparison. He thinks no one will love him unless he eliminates the golden boy. But he realizes, no, he has to give himself for the golden boy and live in the reflected glory. Yeah, he realizes this is how it happened last time, so this time he's going to let the golden boy live and take his place. In the morning, Errol goes to look for him. John's clothes and shoes and the tarot cards are still there. John is gone. Yeah, he finds the cave, but he doesn't see the statue. Oh, bollocks. So this is the final issue by Jamie Delano, Hellblazer number 40, The Magus. Art and colors are by Dave McKeon. Internal art by Dave McKeon, cover by Dave McKeon. And the cover is four images of a face all aligned differently, and the one on the top right is kind of glaring at us. Yeah, it's kind of making Kefka eyes at us. (laughs) Son of a submariner. Laughing mad. So we open up on a Y-shaped tree, kind of a fork in the path, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, and behind it, a great big tower. And the voice narrating senses that something is wrong in his home, which is Ravenscar. Yeah, it says, Approach Pretender. Throw off your sulky concealment. Declare yourself that I may name and isolate the enemy that threatens Ravenscar. My hearth, my home, my body politic. The monologue, we don't know from who it is yet, continues. It just goes on to say, you know, I know I can take you. I've taken out lots of enemies before. Moths, for instance. (laughs) Oh, man. I note that he says here, all this is mine through right of birth. You have no claim. Yeah, we're already getting the sense that this Magus is kind of an arrogant bastard. And then we get a kind of a replay of that birth scene. Yeah, we're hearing as the birth goes differently. The mother still didn't make it, but this time it was the healthy baby who survived. So perfect that he frightens the doctors. So what we are seeing now is the world in which the other Constantine was born. Yeah, it's sort of like it's a wonderful life. More like it's a horrible life. Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, is it supposed to be wonderful or horrible? 
We'll talk more about that, I suppose, as we go forward. Yeah. Okay, so this old man, the Magus, the golden boy, Constantine. He's got green pajamas on. <laughs> That's not where I was going to go, but yeah. He's got a dead body in a circle of fire. Yeah, the dead body seems to be on the wall, but I guess it's hanging. Or is it just on the floor? I and the floor this was is just perspective, that we were seeing it like down over Constantine's shoulder. Yeah, it's a weird angle, because it looks like we're seeing Constantine full from the side, but this stuff that's on the floor kind of looks like it's on the wall. Anyway, there's this dead body in a circle of fire, which is a sacrifice to bind this enemy that he's been sensing. Yeah, he says he's sacrificed a friend, which isn't a very friendly thing to do. And he commands the shade of our Constantine to appear. I am still the Shining One, while you remain no more than the banished sickly boy grown old in grotesque parody of my righteous life. Your presence here insults me and demands my wrath to demonstrate that you may not haunt me. You may not corrupt my land nor threaten those that I have called mine. So yeah, he wants to protect all these people. We'll find out more about that later. But it's really all about him. And he tells Constantine that he is dead, dead, dead. And on the first dead, we see the lightning strike his tower. Yeah. Is he supposed to look good here on this full splash page? This dead, dead, dead? Is he supposed to look, like, healthy and powerful? Or is he supposed to look, as I find that he does, kind of gross and pathetic? Well, I think he's in good health. It's worth noting, though, that this isn't just an alternate universe. It's apparently the future of an alternate universe. Constantine is much older than we are used to. Yes, because... Yeah, later on they talk about what happened in the 90s, and in the main timeline, we're not to the 90s yet. So we find a woman looking at the tower card. John, what have you done? She asks some others what's going on, and they tell her that the Magus's tower has been hit by lightning. This woman is Zed, and the guy who answers is Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the Newcastle crew. We haven't seen him in a long time. I think he's dead. <laughs> I think he's dead. <laughs> That's a reference to an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. I am not going to find out which one. <laughs> yeah, don't look for this in the show notes, guys. <laughs> it's just between us. I've never even seen that show. So, Constantine's friends make it to the tower. They find a naked hanged man. It's Gary Lester. That's the old friend who was sacrificed. Turns out he's actually alive. That's We're going to get a lot of that in this issue. Turns out he was alive? <laughs> Turns out he's actually alive, yep. Gary Lester, not dead after all. Yeah, okay, so where's the Magus, as that asks, and Errol says, over here. Friends, we suffer a most grievous tragedy. John Constantine is dead. I think that's Zed saying that, but sure. Fuck. Yeah, I don't know what accent she's got. Probably just sounds just like that. It, she's from Glastonbury. I guess it would be the local accent in that part of the world. So, yeah, they're very distraught that their Magus, their protector, is dead. We will grieve, Errol. We will mourn our loss. There's some ham-handed exposition here about the alternate universe. Zed now considers Marge and Mercury her sisters. Errol and Mercury have a son named Errol, who has a daughter named Mary, who is pregnant with twins by Constantine. Ugh. Yeah, that's kind of gross. Who is their father? There is no father anymore. Because it was Constantine who's died. Yeah, well, yeah these three pages. Yeah, and again, I note that all the characters are much older than we know them. Mercury is an old woman at this point. 
It's still gross that Constantine has knocked up Mercury's granddaughter. There's still a significant age difference there. It would be gross for him to knock up Mercury. Right. Never mind the granddaughter. Fuck. Yeah, well, we can assume that Mercury didn't have children when she's like 14, 15, as she is now. But there's still a, a huge age difference between Constantine and Mercury's theoretical grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, not the age difference by itself. I mean, depending on the size of the age difference, you know, like, consenting adults can do their own thing, but it's pretty weird. I think we can assume that there's some kind of weird cultish stuff going on here. Yeah, there was a comment that you made back in The Fear Machine that Marge was loving all the unrestrained sex in the hippie commune and thought her daughter should come and join her there. And I was kind of reminded of that, because we can't tell if people are sleeping around in this, like, community that they formed, or if they're just, they're just coupling up. But either way, there's kind of a vaguely incestuous feeling to the fact that all of the, the pagan nation crew are kind of having children with each other. Yeah, we don't know if there's literal incest, but they all call each other, you know, brother and sister. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, so yeah, so there's a birth going on here as well. There was a difficult birth going on in the last issue of the lambs and now there's a difficult birth going on here as well right and the children that mary is having are twins so zed tells marge to get someone to sing them a song and marge tells gary lester to do it and you know he was only just dead a second ago but why the fuck not <laughs> Okay, so Gary was dead in the scene with the Magus calling down the smiting on Constantine. But now they found him hanging but, but alive. Right. Oh yeah, worth mentioning that Gary is still an addict, although now it's electric current to the brain. Yeah, he, he was going to see Richie, Constantine's computer friend, who died in the main timeline but is apparently still alive here. I need a fix, Marge. At least 100 millivolts in the cortex to flip me into neurospace. And we've got a, a trio of witches here, Marge, Mercury, and Zed. I'd, I'd be tempted to call out a Hecate appearance, except that Mercury's a grandmother now, so there's really no maiden. <laughs> yeah, also Hecate appearances are in the other book. Well, still fun. <laughs> so for a couple of pages here, Gary sings a filk song about how great Constantine was. In Liverpool in 53, John Constantine was born. <laughs> That's quite enough of that. <laughs> Some things that we learn over the course of this song. 1953, born. Tom Constantine was still a bad dad, though not hateful, just busy. 1968, John Constantine leaves town. He was the pride of his family, but he scared people because he was too perfect and he had secret knowledge. He did great in school. He left home at 15 to seek the mystic arts. 1975, John Constantine comes out of his mysterious wanderings, to save Gary Lester. Right, saves him from his addictions. He still lost an arm in Newcastle, but he vanquished Hell and saved Astra, apparently. He apparently defeated Nemeth later on without killing Gary and Nurgle, and he fought human oppressors too. Throughout the 1980s, he journeyed far and wide. We learn here that Constantine rhymes with mystical design, just in case you have been wondering for the last 40 issues. Etrigan the Demon already did a rhyme with Constantine, like way earlier. Okay. So we know. And then in the aftermath of some great flood, he led the pagan nation to their current home, Ravenscar. And the end of the song tells us he's probably not even dead. You're sharp, Gary. I like you. <laughs>
<laughs> Wait, where does it say that he's probably not even dead? Where does it say that? Hang on, I, I wrote this down, it must be true. Until today he chose his time to leave without farewell. Perhaps to rest, more like to fight some yet unconquered hell. Alright, so, yeah. <laughs> For he has never failed our trust, or made a move in error. His whole life has been the proof that love defeats all terror. Uh, I guess here he says, Though he's dead, what other choice but onwards in his wake? Our lives are his memorial, our spirits will not break. We'll keep the faith and follow his mystical design onto the shining future of the Magus Constantine. Right. Very reminiscent here of the King Constantine character, who I think only died because he walked into a dragon's mouth because he chose to. Anyway, Gary has basically the right idea. Constantine's alive. This is where the comic gets really confusing. Yeah. Okay, so Constantine wakes back up. And he says that it can't be Gary singing because Gary's dead. He killed him. Years ago, right? Yeah, and he betrayed everyone that he ever liked. So you and I both thought for this page and a half that this is our Constantine awaking the Magus' body. Yeah, it's a Freaky makes... Friday type situation. But then he makes a reference here to the sickly boy. So I guess it is the Magus. Yeah, it's actually the Magus. He's got a little bit of the sickly boy in his head, somehow. And he thinks for a second that he's the other Constantine. Oh, I mean, that's but why he's he such a grump about his whole life. But he comes to his senses pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely been infected by, like, the ideas of the other Constantine. So they are delighted to see him alive, but he says, The Magus is dead. The Magus never lived. Just a hollow fraud hanged in a mess of illusion. Anyway, this woman shows up and calls for Marge, Mercury, and Errol to come assist with the birth. Brother Martin may have to cut, and he needs you there. Zed says, Is this goodbye, John? That remains to be seen. Let's just say I have little expectation of the dawn. He sends away everyone but Zed, his sister, his oldest friend. Zed asks if the twins are his and if they're significant, and he says everything in Ravenscar happens according to his magic will. So the perfect Constantine is a creepy cult leader. Yeah, the golden boy. Oh, this too. Am I not the Magus, the father of everyone? Gross Whedon. He says that he's grown tired and the evils of the outside world are encroaching upon Ravenscar. That's also creepy. He says he sought out the enemy and he found himself, the self he'd long since banished to oblivion, that is to say, the sickly boy. He tried a spell to destroy him and he brought everything crashing down. Yeah, now we go back to the Magus' childhood and mirroring the childhood incident where our Constantine saw the golden boy behind the gravestone, it turns out that in this reality, the Magus saw the sickly boy behind the gravestone. Now, where our Constantine, upon seeing the golden boy, was filled with kind of a need to take some of his strength and be healed, this Constantine was filled with pity. However, he knew that if he reached out to try and help the sickly boy, he would be dragged down with him, destroyed. So he turned his back on him, and he has always regretted it. I can't help those less fortunate than me. I'd be giving all the time. <laughs> I wondered if there's a level here where Delano is talking about privilege, right? Like, the Magus has it, and he's an asshole. John has not had it, and burnt out though he is, he is driven by compassion, essentially, in our world. Well, I don't know. I don't see Delano as having that kind of sympathy for John. For 
main John. Yeah, for our John. Delano is always kind of is always kind of crapping on John. You know, he's basically always got people yelling at him for what a a coward and a no good lousy pervert he is, even when he's not really doing anything wrong. <laughs> so the point isn't so much where the Magus went wrong, is that both Constantines are flawed. Yeah, and that's the conclusion that they're going to come to a little later on. The Magus has some lines I want to mention here. He says that he and the sickly boy are two halves of the same whole. He says that the Magus triumphs are built on Constantine's failures and suffering. Vainglorious Ravenscar is built up out of lies and founded on a crime. Now, we find out, he says to Zed, I used poor Gary as a surrogate to magically reenact my murderous birth and capture and destroy the sickly boy again. But power used in error rebounds with twice the force. So, it's destroyed everything, I guess. He seems to be talking as if his spell rebounded and destroyed everything, but destroyed what? It doesn't even look like the tower came down, did it? They seem to be in the tower, although the top of it was certainly blown off. All of his friends are still alive. Well, the birth is going wrong. Maybe that's a sign that things aren't going well ah, for Ravenscar. Okay. So this Constantine remembers killing the sickly boy in the womb, as Constantine remembers eliminating the golden boy, except he decided to summon him up and re-kill him. Right. And that's why Gary Lester had to be sacrificed. Okay, so... Zed says that Raven's scar is great and all beauty is transient, sort of trying to comfort him by saying, hey, it was going to fall apart eventually anyway. But the uh, Magus says, basically, now that he's failed, now that he's destroyed everything he built, what should he go and do? Whatever you want to do, John. Same as ever. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, I, just on a practical level, it's a great advice. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for something more specific. <laughs> yeah. There's an interesting little chat here. He says he can't see in the dark. Or does she say that? Yeah, she says she can't see in the dark as he blows the candles out. And he says, sometimes the light just dazzles your eyes and the darkness is more honest. Right. He says that he's leaving never to return. Yeah. Goodbye, my love. The two of them part ways and he heads into the underworld for a confrontation with the sickly boy. Yeah, I wondered about this. Like, if this was supposed to be his version of the cave, or if this is supposed to be his version of, like, the dream world that Mercury showed John, where he saw his death. It does kind of seem like he's just able to, like, close his eyes and go there. Mm hmm Yeah, there's definitely demons lurking around here. Yeah. And there's a grave that's labeled Sister Anne, but I don't know who that is. Me either. He calls out to the sickly boy. I submit to your justice and abandon my brittle fortress to return to the dismal heart of your infectious life. He's going to take John's place in his imperfect life, give John the chance to be the one who lived again. And he walks into a giant mouth. Only now do I appreciate the depths which I have lacked. You were a vast dimension of which I was ignorant, the scapegoat saddled with my sin. Now I must be the sacrificial lamb, shriven of my golden fleece, and left alone to face my terror, shivering and old. So he's being very self-sacrificing, but he's also being kind of very super fucking grandiose about it. Yeah, exactly. And John's basically going to point that out as they meet here. About um, time you got here. I've been waiting 40 years, John says. He also says that he's shit better magi, and he's surprised Zed let him get away with this box. <laughs> yeah, he does a kind of a, like a my Zed is better than your Zed. Well, of course, his Zed is better than the Magus's Zed. The Magus's Zed has been living in the Magus's shadow 
all this time, whereas John Zed is really the more competent one of the two of them. He's <laughs> always having to pick his ass up. Yeah. So, yeah. So Constantine says that the Magus is looking for a heroic Arthurian death, but no dice. Constantines, he says, are all self-obsessed. The Magus wonders how many other Constantines there are. He name-checks King Constantine here. Yeah, as well as Joanna Constantine. This might be her first mention in this book. Right, and the Emperor Constantine, or both Emperors Constantine. He also says there's a Constantine who's a psychic assassin on the moon. How have we not fucking seen this? A psychic assassin on the moon! When is Donnie Cates writing that book? (laughs) That was the best part of the issue right there. So when it comes right down to it, old son, we're all playing the same game. Life and bleed and death, bro. Come on, it's the only game in town. They come to the big woman again. Right, the woman statue. The very feminine, yeah, woman statue. This is the center of the spiral. The place where time after time we've done the deed. Now we've both been round the track again and fetched up at the start. This is where we fight the battles, each in his turn abandoning the loser to fester and poisonously mock the futility of the victor's life from the decay of our dead mother's womb. Okay, so they keep meeting in the womb and fighting over and over again, and it creates one reality where one of them is triumphant, and and it's always kind of a shit show either way. Oh, I want to point this out, too. That's the trick in it. Selective amnesia. Forget the pain. Well, anesthetic's just a panacea, pal. It doesn't cure disease. A panacea literally means something that cures all disease. But that's beside the point, <laughs> which is that this is the issue that John has been bumping into for the whole story arc. The idea that ignoring problems doesn't make them go away. That he's in pain because he can't ignore the world's problems. Right, and what they're talking around kind of here is the idea of instead, what if instead of fighting each other, they somehow combined... Is there a chance? We're both magicians in our ways, though neither of us magus. Can't we unite our opposites so that our elemental division is alchemically reconciled? Will you embrace me, brother? Will you forgive my crime? Sure, why not? Consider it done. We're quits. But I'm not sure that's the point. What do you mean? John goes on to say, It isn't you who's right, or me the one who's injured. We're two halves of the problem, symptoms of the same disease. I think the Earth's the victim of that crime that we're both guilty of. And by the Earth, he sort of means also their mother. Yeah, and he says that Ravenscar is that mother, murdered by our magic lives. So they decide to give it a try, to unite. Come on then, you golden bastard, let's have a laugh and give it one last whirl. And fall, spinning through the thick red night towards that light, still shining in primal constancy in the gap between death and life. You see, what looks to be them as two old men wrestling in the womb, yeah, and as the the redness kind of builds into a bright yellow light, Zed, 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 mirroring the dead, dead, dead of the earlier splash page. Yeah. In what looks like our world, Zed is awakened by Errol. That's his voice cutting through the dream. He's looking for John. Yeah, he thinks John is playing a prank on him. <laughs> he shows Zed the card left behind in John's clothes, the hanged man. Zed says there was a cave in her dream. Right, she thinks that this is too big of a coincidence that it's just like her dream. She thinks right. there's more going on here than just a prank. Yeah, John ran into a cave. There was a cave in her dream. She seems to have seen something of genuine importance. They search all over the pagan nation camp for John, but no luck. Yeah, Errol apparently went to Zed in the morning, and now it's night. They've looked all day. Zed asks to see the cave. At this point... Errol has a conversation with a woman who can only be Mercury, but is clearly too old to be Mercury. 
Yeah, I guess I thought it was Marge, but he does call her Mercury. I thought maybe him calling her Mercury was a typographic error. Well, she also says that she's the one who, in the dream, had grandchildren with him. Oh, okay. She said, if you had a son, what would you call him? And Errol says uh, he would name him Errol the Bollocks, like Alfred the Great. <laughs> which I think is a great idea. <laughs> Errol the Bollocks is a great name. That's right. I totally endorse any anybody listening who wants to name their kid that. Yeah, so she's sort of confirming that the dream, which I guess she also had, was real by asking if their son would be named Errol, and he would be. Yeah. And then he asks if their granddaughter survived the pregnancy, and she says she doesn't know. She woke up. Anyway, Errol and Mercury make it to the cave, but there's no cave there, just the pile of rocks that John saw the Golden Boy disappear into yesterday. Yeah, and at some point Zed walks up as well. And who did you say took the mushrooms? Now they find a gravestone memorializing Constantine. In memoriam, John Constantine. From womb to tomb and back again, the journey wobbles on. If it's a joke, it's on us, too. Errol doesn't understand. Zed, who calls him lover here, says that none of them are meant to understand. They merely catch glimpses of something bigger than them. You need more than one lifetime of experience to understand it, she says. Before you can begin to see the subtle complexities in the patterns of growth and decay. She picks up the Magus card left in the sand. And probably you'd live and die a thousand times to get to be a Magus. Okay, so... John Constantine is dead. Yeah. But there's going to be another issue next month. <laughs> yeah. Written by someone else. Okay, so the series from this point does not address these events. The Golden Boy will eventually appear again somewhere around the 250s. Is that during the Peter Milligan era? I couldn't tell you who the writer was on those issues offhand. But the next issue definitely doesn't pick up with Constantine either being dead or trapped in an alternate universe. I guess what happened is that when John and the Magus tried to unite as one, tried to live one whole life, they left behind both of their realities. Yeah. So John exists in a DC universe going forward, but it's neither the one the Golden Boy nor the Sickly Boy came from. Not the one that we've seen for 40 issues. In other words, Jamie Delano ended his universe here. There's a John Constantine still, and other writers will tell his stories, but the universe that appeared in 1 through 40 is closed off, it's Constantine is dead, its story is complete. So, does that mean that we don't see Zed or Mercury anymore, or any of those other characters? I have no idea. Hmm. There might be versions of them in some other reality. Okay, fair enough. It's like everything that came before is canon to what happens after this, but everything that happens after this is not canon to what... Jamie Delano leaves behind. Okay. I don't know. That's what I took away from it anyway. No, I think that's a pretty good interpretation. It's better than anything I came up with. Okay. But yeah, it seems to make sense. They're dead in both of their origin realities, but now there's a new reality where they're somewhere whole together. The Golden Boy and the Sickly Boy. Right. And what's interesting about Garth Ennis's world is not only does he not draw much on the continuity of the Hellblazer series up to this point. But he immediately goes about establishing that John Constantine has loads of history and old friends and enemies and contacts that we've never seen before. He just immediately starts building up a, you know, a complex and interesting world around Constantine. Yeah, that'll be fun to get into. You did not like this comic book. 
no, I didn't. I criticized Jamie Delano plenty of times throughout his run. Even though it had its high points, I've always been kind of looking forward to, mainly looking forward to getting to the Garth Ennis stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there were some good stories along the way. There was a lot of fairly bad navel gazy filler along the way. Mm. There were a lot of pretty problematic messages along the way. Okay, okay. Can you explain somewhat though why you took issue with the with the storytelling in this particular comic? I just think for this particular one, it's just first of all, there's a ton of unrealistic behavior. Gary Lester's dead. No, he's alive. Hey, Gary, be a doll and fucking sing me a song. Even though I thought you were dead two seconds ago. (laughs) Okay. The Magus, Constantine, is dead. Oh, no, he's alive. Hey, let's all leave him alone and go into another room, even though we thought he was dead a minute ago. (laughs) We don't need to see him right now. It's fine. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that's unrealistic behavior, since they seem to basically do what the Magus tells them to constitutionally. I don't even think it was his idea for them to leave. And furthermore, it's just from the very beginning, like we're getting narrations from the Magus Constantine, but we don't know that. It takes way too long to orient ourselves. It takes way too long to realize whether it's a body swap or not. It's just, it's sending storytelling signals that are contradictory to what it actually is trying to tell you is going on. It's just not real strong storytelling. There is definitely an issue of stakes where characters keep dying and popping up. I mean, you didn't have to begin that alternate universe sequence by killing off Constantine and Gary, and Jamie Delano chose to, and then brought them back immediately because he needed them. Yeah, it's just, even from like a, from like a visual standpoint, I mean, Dave McKeon's art is obviously great, but this comic is just way too much people standing around talking to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, just just last week we covered an issue of Sandman that's just one long conversation. Yeah. And it's very visually interesting throughout. And this just isn't. It's just a lot of dowdy-looking old people <laughs> who aren't well distinguished from each other in terms of character design talking to each other in dimly lit rooms. Well, yeah, I, I admit I'm not really a fan of Dave McKeon as primary artist in general, but yeah... It's very dim. It's a bunch of old people who are, you know, they're all old versions of characters we know. But even so, they're hard to distinguish from each other. And they just have conversations. Yeah. And, like, the parts where it does have a chance to kind of be, like, really cool visual storytelling. Like, where the two Constantines are in this kind of land together. This mystic land. And they're talking about how they're going to try and combine each other. They still just aren't that visually interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'll say this, like, the reappearance of our Constantine after several pages in a reality without him really should be kind of a big dynamic hero moment. Yeah. He's just standing there. Yeah, and he's just completely in darkness. We We can't really even see him. Look at page 191. Everybody is so in shadow on this page that you basically are just reading speech bubbles. Hmm. You're kind of barely even looking at the art. Well, I know you're more of a McKeon fan. Is, is there a moment you'd like to call out as a better one? Serious House on Serious Earth? 
Well, that's not what I meant, but uh, point taken. <laughs> uh, you mean, is there a moment of good art in this issue yeah. that I'd like to call out? Yeah. All right, give me a second to flip through it, and maybe I can find a, a good page. If you look at the pages of Gary's Ballad, those are pretty cool, actually. Oh, this is probably my least favorite part, though. It's all totally abstract. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I like that better than... I guess I like that better than the several pages of just <laughs> same-looking people talking in a dim room that we get after that. The part where there are two old men fighting in the womb is... Yeah, it's okay, but it just seems like it could be a lot more visually impressive. I'm not gonna lie, the like the dead twin in the womb thing, I don't know when that became a cliche, and maybe this was early enough that it wasn't yet, but that feels like a cliche to me and not one that I'm particularly fond of. No, I mean, maybe it's worth talking about here just for a minute that we, like, actually are twins, and, <laughs> and people have all kinds of misconceptions about it. There's no psychic powers. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not the same person. <laughs> you know? It's... No. I don't think we ever tried to kill each other. <laughs> I don't think you ever... I don't think you ever Xaviered me. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, Cassandra Nova, Xavier's okay. twin. Die, you little son of a bitch! <laughs> Professor X had a twin sister that he killed in the womb because he immediately realized she was evil. And, okay, isn't it already a retcon to say that Professor X was super intelligent in the womb? Never mind. <laughs> right. But, yeah, this whole, like, there's twins in the womb and they fight or, you know, and I think we literally see Constantine choke the other twin with the umbilical cord here at one point. There's definitely a comic book where we see Xavier do that to Cassandra Nova. Oh, he didn't use psychic blasts? I mean, we maybe see it more than once and it's portrayed oh, differently okay. different okay. ways, different times, but it might be in the Tom Taylor X-Men Red where we see that. Okay. What's the other thing? The the deceased twin is is born into the body of the of the living one and maybe they come back from that somehow at some later time. It all just instantly strikes me as both a cliche and just like gross for grossness's sake yeah i mean it's it's like mystifying something that is really really basic science <laughs> like there is nothing magical <laughs> going on here so like just right away as soon as it's and i think that as i say this i'm kind of digging myself my own hole because people are going to think oh he just has a chip on his shoulder about bad twin tropes in fiction. Mm -hmm. So when he says that these are bad comic books, they actually aren't bad comic books. No, they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are. But, like, the icing on top of that cake is just the fact of this whole twin stuff of, like, oh, was it meant to be my life or his life? We're the same person. We're two halves of a whole. Like, None of that shit is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. I will say something nice here. I think it's at least Delano has a history of of making magic more than just a plot device. And I think it's cool that he tried to write some, you know, some some really mystical weirdness here to really delve into like self and destiny and and, and he wove the tarot theme into it. You know, I'm generously pointing out that he's trying to tell a more a more significant story than just another comic book battle. Fair enough. 
You asked me for a page where I thought the art looks good. Actually, if you look at the first page of the issue, where there's the art of the moon here, and it's the establishing shot of Raven Scar with the tree in the foreground and the tower in the background, that looks pretty bitchy. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, I was not impressed with this issue visually, and I don't think that it's Dave McKeon's fault. I think that it's the script just not giving him enough to do. So yeah, that's my feeling. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean's going to be reading Border Town Number 1, which dropped this month. Now, this is one of the new Vertigo titles. One of the relaunched Vertigo titles. Yeah, that's right. And there's a whole new lineup of Vertigo. I think we actually talked about it when we saw the press release. We talked about it a few episodes back. Yeah, in the Convergence episode. Right. But, yeah. Those have arrived now. And, uh... Alright, go read it. And I'm reading it. And I'm done. Good job. Okay, so this is Border Town number one, uh, written by Eric M. Esquivel, with art by Ramon Villalobos, colors by Tamara Bonvillan, and there's a credit here for a variant cover by Jorge Jimenez, but this, I think, is the Ramon Villalobos cover. Yes. Okay, so we open on the little town of Devil's Fork, Arizona, which is right on the border of the United States and Mexico, and we are going to learn it is also right on the border of Earth and the Aztec underworld. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was pretty great. Yeah. We have some white power guys arming up here to drive away the the Mexican immigrants. And then we see a Mexican family trying to cross the border. They get eaten by a giant stereotypical Mexican monster. It's very sad. I think after that, yeah, it tears into the white power guys off panel. Hmm, okay. And then we cut to our main character, Frank. Yeah. Francisco, Frank for short, who is just moving into Devil's Fork, which he hates a lot. Yeah, so I was completely able to understand why he didn't want to move to Devil's Fork. It seems like he gives pretty good reasons. White supremacy and venomous lizards. (laughs) Yeah, venomous lizards. Because Arizona has, what is it, a dozen kinds of lethally venomous reptile. Yeah. But what I didn't understand is why he, like, desperately wanted to... Like, make sure that nobody knew his real first name. Okay, I guess I just thought it was just that he liked Frank. Like, he stands up in class and shouts, I'm half Mexican, later in the issue. So he's not hiding anything. Okay, well, it seems like he was kind of hiding it for a minute. And, I don't know. Uh, There's a bit here where he hears something on the radio that makes his nose bleed. Yeah! So he's kind of connected to what's going on somehow, I guess. Some kind of mystic energy came through that ra- Something going on with that radio. <laughs> <laughs> so here he gets a hug from a big guy named Quinta, who is wearing a uh, luchador mask all of the time, and a Superman t-shirt. Oh, I didn't notice the Superman t-shirt. Yeah. So this is very published by DC Comics, right? Like, yeah. There's a couple of things to talk about. Well, oh, there's a little bit later, which I thought was pretty good, too. Yeah. He meets this guy who's nice to him, but it turns out that he's a skinhead and they're going to have to fight later. I wondered... So, okay, I thought maybe that guy was a skinhead. I thought that maybe the X on his hand was trying to tell us that he's a skinhead, but I also don't know why that would mean that. I thought that just meant that you went to a club last night when you were too young to drink. Oh, right, right. He's got the... Yeah. The black spot there. 
Yeah. And also, it seems like Blake, the skinhead, and Quinta, the very Mexican fellow who wears a luchador mask by choice, are kind of buddies here. Yeah. But then later we find out that they hate each other, and indeed, skinhead guy hates all the Mexicans. Right. It's just weird. So, yeah, he runs into these these two girls who are kind of judgy about his potential whiteness, and then he announces to them that he's half Mexican, and he is corrected. That makes you sound like the world's shittiest centaur. You're Mexican, and you're Irish, and you're American. All three fully and all three simultaneously. 300%. I I mean, I tell people that I'm half Irish, and I'm kind of sick of hearing everybody's whining about it, so... Whatever floats your boat in terms of how you express your identity. So he ends up in a fight with this guy, and it turns out that he's a badass, and he, like, fought his way to the top of his previous schools, and... He beats the crap out of this guy, and then we learn that these monsters, these ogres, are showing up all over town, and they take the form of people's greatest fears, like a stereotypical Mexican monster, or an ice agent, or Bane. (laughs) Yeah, right. So again, like, they're using the fact that they're published by DC to include, like, lots of on-brand DC stuff in a, you know, kind of satirical way. Yeah, that's that's fun. And then we have here what is either a brujeria shop, a comic book shop, or both. Because this is where the old witch, the oldest woman in town, lives. But also, like, here's the Sandman's mask, and Iron Man's mask, and possibly an Infinity Gauntlet. Right. And there appears to be a poster of Constantine and Zatanna making out. Yeah, alright. That's what that is. So we just get a little setup on that character. She's going to have something to do with the resolution of things, but we don't really know what yet. Yeah. So at this point, the fight between Frank and the skinhead is interrupted by the arrival of a cop ogre. Yeah, or an ogre cop. They're chupacabras, right? Well, yeah, he is He is referred to as the chupacabra later. This girl, Julieta or Julieta, I'm not really sure, whichever one she prefers. She shoots the ogre cop to drive it away, and then they have to run away from the actual cops because she's undocumented and she could be deported for that. And then the ogre cop turns into a cute little monster which escapes into the Aztec underworld and is greeted by McClanticutli, the Lord of the Dead, who tells him, You fucked up. Yeah. So, all that's by way of basic recap, but what did you think of it? I think there are, there are three things to really discuss in this issue. One is that it's very overtly political. Yeah, definitely. Second, as I pointed out before, it's making somewhat liberal use of DC Comics properties. Yeah. Just as background flavor. Although it clearly, I think, is not meant to take place in that universe. And see fucking monsters and shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's fucking monsters, all right. Yeah, and it seems from the cover, like, we have seen the assembling of basically a, a Scooby gang here to deal with the monsters while still being in high school. Oh, okay. Well, maybe. I definitely don't see authority figures having a big role in resolving this situation. Yeah, the cover shows Frank and the two girls and the guy in the luchador mask and one of the chupacabras just all in kind of a group pose. I think it very likely that one of the chupacabras, one of the cute little chupacabras is going to turn out to be a good guy and, and join the team here. Okay. I guess it could just be there to tell us, like, oh, there's also monsters in this comic, but but that's my read. It is interesting that if you look at this cover, the least interesting-looking person on it is the main character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, he's got a skateboard. So, oh, he knows, yeah. so he knows exactly okay. where it is. 
Well, yeah, and when you actually read the comic, he has interesting things to say. Yeah. But, yeah, passing privilege, I guess, Yeah, is going to be a, a thing there. Although, his passing privilege almost gets his ass kicked, except that he turns out to be fucking awesome in a fight. Yeah, he's fucking the guy from Tenjo Tenge, who's fought his way to the top of a dozen schools, and this one is next. I don't have any idea what that is. That is an anime series that is very old. No, okay. it's like ten years old. Okay. Well, anyways, so what did you think? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I in a way, I hate to say that, like... I don't take issue with it being overtly political, but to me it seems like going after white power assholes and guys in MAGA hats is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. But hey, I mean, they're still around. Right, yeah. I mean, like, you have to satirize them because they haven't gone anywhere yet. Like, they haven't been mocked out of the public discourse yet. Yeah, right, I think right. I think for me it was right on the edge of, like, satisfyingly political versus crossing, like, a little too far into ham-fisted mm -hmm. political. But most of the time, I think it's on the right side of not quite ham-fisted. Okay, okay, yeah. It's no more ham-fisted about the fact that you shouldn't be racist than, like, X-Men comic books are about the fact that you shouldn't, <laughs> like, hate mutants. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. So, let's talk about the art for a minute here. Villa Lobo's does things, and I don't want to say a very Frank Quitely style, but that's what it reminded me the most of. No, it's absolutely, like, I had the exact same comparison in mind. Yeah, so everything has a lot of texture. I think the guy who sold me the comic book said that it's, like, Frank Quitely-ish art. <laughs> I mean, it's, seriously, it's, you know, it's it's just the obvious comparison. Yeah, I thought the giant ogres had a nice combination of looking cool and also looking kind of ludicrous because they're in human clothes and walking around like they don't notice that they're ogres. Yeah, they look stupid but scary at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's effective. And then I, I want to point out this point here where a skinhead guy misses a punch and there's a whoof sound effect that uh, that trails behind his hand in cursive. And that looked really cool. Yeah, that was neat. This part here, the design of the city is fucking rad. Oh, this, like, combination of pre-Columbian architecture and Kirby-style technology here. Right. Yeah, that was pretty dope-looking. Any other thoughts? Well, if you want to view it as a political allegory, though, you kind of have to wonder... Well, no, I guess this is established in the text. Like, Frank says that Mexican immigrants are probably just trying to get away from something worse, which is why they take the incredibly dangerous journey to get here. And I guess what they set up at the end of the comic with Miklantikutli, the Lord of the Dead, is that there is something worse in the in the Aztec underworld as well. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Because I was kind of wondering about it, like, as a political allegory, you don't want to establish that, like, oh, illegal immigrants come here because they're all part of an evil scheme. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I didn't see the the underworld as, like, an allegory for you know, undocumented immigration. I just sort of more saw, like... I guess I just thought that this was setting up an adventure-type story mm -hmm. with, like, the backdrop of real-world racism and the Aztec underworld, both as, like, just flavors that are being blended together in that. Right, right. But not necessarily analogous to each other. Yeah, I was a little concerned that if you take it allegorically, that... You know, that it basically portrays immigration as an invasion. But mm -hmm. we will see how that boils out. Boils? 
We will see how that turns out. We will see how that boils out indeed. Are you going to be reading any more Border Town? I would like to read the second issue at least to see how this goes, to see how it slips into a regular sort of rhythm of adventures. Well, let's look at the ad here and see. Maybe the ad blurb can give us more of an idea of how they're trying to sell this. Whether it's a limited run or an ongoing? Well, I believe these are all supposed to be ongoings, but of course that depends on how they sell. Yeah. Um, But no, about whether it's supposed to be like more allegorical or more just an adventure. Okay. The blurb reads, The border between worlds has cracked and mythical monsters are pouring into the small town of Devil's Fork, Arizona. It's up to a group of high school misfits and their pet chupacabra to discover the secrets behind the supernatural invasion before it's too late. So, like, there is an invasion going on. Like a supernatural invasion. And... Unlike the undocumented immigrants from Mexico, this book does not intend for us to have any sympathy for the supernatural monsters. It doesn't seem like. Well, there's a pet chupacabra who's going to join the main cast. But from that blurb, it's like supernatural invasion of monsters. (laughs) The the, the monsters, somebody somebody definitely has to do something about the monsters because they are eating people. They're not harmless. (laughs) Right. Anyways, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, well worth a look. Well, the next time we read Hellblazer, it'll be a new world, a new John Constantine, and a new writer, Garth Ennis. But first, join us next week for Preacher Special, The Good Old Boys. Next week. See you there. Very uh, Guys is written and performed by Eric and I. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show, and Eric handles social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com. In this context, Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. It's only the E's they've taken out. And if you go there, you will find lots more episodes plus show notes for every episode. Well, I don't know if you'll find them. They're there. But I don't, you know, different people have different levels of web surfing skills. Don't insult people's web surfing competence. You know what? You'll find them. (laughs) If you would rather navigate on over to Twitter.com, you can get in touch with us at Vertigize. You can reach me at BlankCastChomp. If you'd like to send us an email, you can. The email address is vertiguys at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear listener questions. We would love to hear suggestions for what you'd like to see in Phase 2. Animal Man, perhaps? Swamp Thing is now very much on the table? You remember that time that Swamp Thing was on the table because he turned a tobacco plant into a little Swamp Thing? Hey, listen, leave us reviews. <laughs> we'd be glad to read them on the air if they're good reviews on uh, apple podcasts and thanks for listening thanks everybody thanks everybody Hang on, don't start talking again. <laughs> the Vertigide story. <laughs> wait, 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 shut the fuck up. <laughs> really, Mr. Constantine, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's an innocent little baby. Oh, that's a, that's a that's nurse. A, that's, a woman. that's a lady. I'm doing. <laughs> Let me do that.